It is good to see your faces. I hope it's been a good weekend for you. My Aggies lost yesterday. They couldn't handle a number four ranking, so not a great day for me. You can commiserate with me. Any Penn State fans out there? It's a good day for you guys, but we've come to talk about more important things than that. Let's, let's pray. Father, we thank you that in your sovereignty and your goodness, you have brought us here today. Uh, and as we just sang, that one day the trump will sound, uh, the clouds will part, Lord Jesus, you will descend, and we will be able to say on that day, it is well with our soul because we have been covered by your blood and gifted your righteousness. And so rather than shrinking from your appearing, we'll be able to embrace and, and shout out that we are glad that you are appearing and returning. And so, Lord, I pray today that you would point us towards the truth of your word, that you make me faithful in proclaiming it. Lord Jesus, I pray that the result of our time together today would be that we'd be encouraged, that we'd be convicted where we need to be convicted, that we'd be reminded that we are loved by you, and that it would change who we are and the way we live. We pray it, Lord Jesus, in your name and for your sake. Amen. If you've got your Bible, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We are going to pick right up where we left off in our study of the book of 2 Corinthians. If you're just joining us or it's first time here, we've been going through the book of 2 Corinthians where I hope we're learning a lot about this, what it means to be strong when we are weak. Uh, that, that is one of the themes that runs throughout the book. Let me ask a very important question. Have you ever played the game, what superpower would you have if you could have any superpower? Yes, absolutely you played that game. All right, so just out of curiosity, how many have answered that question? You want to fly. You want to soar like a bird. Yeah, that's a pretty good one. Absolutely. How many of you said, oh, let's see, super strength? Anybody say super strength? No, that's not a popular one. Okay, awesome. Anybody invisibility? Anybody want to be invisible? Yes, that's weird and a little creepy. <laughs> so mental health professionals just kind of glance around and just notice who, well, we'll they'll be waiting for you in the lobby afterwards. No, I, I have a friend, and he is one of my dearest friends, Bill Wilson, just a great dude, one of my favorite people. He has one of the weirdest answers to this question ever that I discovered when we led a small group of high school students together, and we asked this question of them, and they answered things like you just answered, fly, invisible. He said, my superpower I want is I want to be able to shoot any liquid out of my fingers. <laughs> Which I thought was weird and a little gross. I was like... And he said, no, think about it. Gasoline, you never have to worry about filling up your car again. Nachos at the game, you're covered. I was like, dude, that's weird, man. That is weird. So here's, here's the thing I was thinking about this week, not just about superpowers because we play that game and it's a little silly and it's fun. But the reality is this, is that you and I, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're in Christ, you have been given something that's better than any superpower that you could hypothesize about getting you have something better than invisibility, better than super strength, better than being able to fly. What you have been given in Jesus Christ is the ability to see into the spiritual realms, the spiritual realities that lie underneath and behind the physical realities of our world. Did you know that? Did you know that when you came to Christ, he opened your eyes and gave you the ability to see things that you could not see before? that now you look at things entirely differently. I hope that's been your experience if you've come to Jesus, that all of a sudden things that once looked one way now look very different. That you used to see things in one capacity and now in Christ you see them entirely differently. That you see people differently than you once saw them. That you see the events of our world very differently than you once saw them. Things that used to make you fret and worry 
Now you are reminded that behind all of it is the sovereign hand of God and you fear not any longer. That you used to treasure things of this earth as if you couldn't live without them. And all of a sudden your spiritual eyes were opened and you realized that maybe they're not so important. That there's something else lying behind and underneath those things that they're pointing to. That's even more important. In Christ, you have the ability to see with spiritual eyes. You have the ability to see what lies spiritually behind and underneath every physical reality in our world. That's a remarkable thing, isn't it? That's a remarkable gift in Christ. Let me give you one example of that. Marriage is a great example of that. Now, before we came to Christ, we looked at marriage and we thought to ourselves, maybe this is just something people do when they're in love. It makes them happy, and that's what they're about. They just want to be happy, so they get married, and they can't imagine being happy without this person. Certainly, marriage does make people happy, right? That's a good thing. But perhaps we've also looked at marriage and we thought just societally it makes sense for human beings to create an institution called marriage to make stable families, because stable families will help societies thrive. So just sociologically, it makes sense that we would create something called marriage. Maybe that's the way we once looked at marriage. And then we came to Jesus and we saw the spiritual reality lying underneath and behind marriage was actually not that it was created by men to create more stable families. It was created by God to represent what it was going to be like when he redeemed a bride for himself called the church through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, the groom. And he was going to enact for all time in front of all of us a drama played out through marriage reminding us of the spiritual reality of our world. That Christ loves us, his church, the way a husband loves his wife, loves his bride. And so when we look at our marriages, it changes everything about the way we see them. It changes how we define marriage. It changes why we, what we think the purpose of marriage is. Then it changes the way we live inside of marriage because we don't see the way we once saw now we see something underneath and behind it of profound importance. And in Christ, you have that. And it's greater than any, than any superpower you could ever hypothesize about having. Isn't that good? Isn't that true? Isn't that right? Now, here's what I want to point you to today. As we look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we're going to look at verses 14 through 21. And the thing we're going to see is that this text is actually all about what I've just been talking about. It's all about this idea that we have the ability to see things in a way that we once did not see them. It's about having spiritual eyes. And you're going to see that we're going to be given a job title, a job description in this passage. In verse 18, we're going to be called those who have been given the ministry of reconciliation. And what that is, is it's that we have been called to be people who help other people be reconciled to God. And not just to God, but to one another through being reconciled to God. So wherever there's broken relationship, wherever there's strife, wherever there's difficulty, there the people of God are saying, how do we bring reconciliation to this situation? First and foremost, how do we see people be reconciled to a God whom they have offended and rebelled against? And then how inside of that, as a result of that, do we see people be reconciled to one another and form this beautiful thing called the church, where people live, although very different, in great unity with one another? I was reading a, a Eugene Peterson article, and if you've read anything by Eugene, he's brilliant, great thinker and a great writer. And one of the things he said in this article that I was reading, he said, uh, when I was, he said, in my early days of being a pastor, I realized very quickly that I did not enjoy a lot of the people in my church. And I thought that was a problem. And then I came to realize that that was part of the point. 
that part of the point of the gospel was that people who I, upon first glance, did not enjoy very much because we just were so different from one another and we just didn't seem to have similar perspectives on almost anything. And as much difficulty as there seemed to be in our ability to relate, I recognized that part of the point of the gospel was my recognizing that because they had been reconciled to God through Christ and I had been reconciled to God through Christ, we were going to be able to be reconciled to one another and live with one another in love and in unity within this beautiful thing called the church. It's a pretty brilliant plan, if, uh, you know, if I say so myself, right? And so God is going to call us in this passage ministers of reconciliation or those who have been given the ministry of reconciliation. And here's what I want to point out to you today. All of this passage is pointing out spiritual realities that lie underneath and behind the physical realities of our world. And that seeing those spiritual realities seeing those spiritualities is going to be important and necessary if we're going to accomplish our job as ministers of reconciliation. So I want to point you to three places where we need to take on these new eyes to see. Now here's what I want to tell you. You have been given these new eyes when you've come to Christ. You've been given the ability to see what you once couldn't see just by virtue of being in Christ. But it's not as if we just say, okay, I've been given it and now that's, that's it, it's done, I don't need to worry about it anymore. There's a way in which we take that and we have to acclimate ourselves to seeing with those new eyes. We have to work at seeing with those new eyes so that we learn to live out the reality of the new vision we've been given in Christ. And so the three areas that I want to point out things that we need to see spiritual realities in uh, behind and underneath, the three areas is what we need to see about God, what we need to see about other people and what we need to see about ourselves. They're pretty simple, pretty straightforward, right? What do we need to see about God, about other people, about ourselves? Let's read 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 through 21. They say this. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I'm going to read that last verse again. Because there may be no more radically life-altering text in all of Scripture when, than this. For our sake, he made him, who is him, Jesus himself. He made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's a fundamental game changer, isn't it? So that we might become the righteousness of God. Here's what I want you to understand about verse 18, right? So verse 18, right there in the middle, kind of the crux of this whole passage, where he says, all this is from God. In other words, everything that I've said before this, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself 
and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That's where we are beginning to understand our job description. We are ministers of reconciliation. But when you read that, you could think this. You could think, okay, it says we've been given the ministry of reconciliation. In other words, there's a job we've been given to do. It's a task. It's a thing. And we can kind of take it up when we want to take it up. And we can kind of leave it over to the side when we want to leave it over to the side. It's sort of, you know, I mean, like the way we all do. Sometimes we have jobs and we take breaks from them. And we don't do it sometimes. And we do do it other times. And sometimes we may, qu- we may quit a job and we may start a new job. And one of the things I want to make sure that we see is that he's not just saying this is a job you've been given that you can pick up or put down whenever you desire. He's saying it's not just a job, it's an identity you've been given. Now follow this, because in verse 17, directly preceding where he says we've been given the ministry of reconciliation, he says this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. In other words, what he's saying is you're no longer, when you come to Christ, what you were before you came to him. Some, some translations that you may have in your hands say a new creature, not just a new creation. That's a pretty good image. I like that image. You are an entirely new thing, a creature that has not been seen before. What you were fundamentally at the very hardcore level of who you were has now been transformed into something completely different. And because of that, you've been given the ministry of reconciliation. In other words, what he's saying is It's not just a job you've been given to do. It's a thing you've been made into. You are not just someone who is supposed to reconcile others to God. You are someone who is at your very core a reconciler. Someone who is a minister of reconciliation. There's a difference between believing it's a job you do and and an identity you hold. Do you see the distinction between those two things? Right? If you believe that as your core identity you've been reconciled to God and therefore you are made to reconcile others to God, here's what happens. You begin to do that in a way that flows out of you naturally. It begins to flow out of you naturally because it begins to become your bent, the lens through which you look at life. It's you understand the spiritual reality of my nature now is such that I am no longer this thing, I am now this thing. And fundamentally part of what that new thing is that I am is someone whose identity is reconciled and reconciling others. So it's not a job I pick up and put down. It's a thing that I am and then live out of, right? That's an important distinction to make. I'll say also here, friends, that I have never found uh, anything more helpful in my battle against my own sin patterns, my own sin struggles. I have never found anything more helpful than this specific truth, that I am no longer what I was. Because it is very defeating to battle against sin, whatever that sin may be that's repetitive in our lives. It's very defeating to believe I am at my core something broken and shattered, and yet somehow I have to figure out how to do right and good things. That creates a a division in us that becomes very hard to marry, right? becomes very hard to live out of. But when we believe, not because of our own merit, not because we figured out some way to do it, that Christ has fundamentally changed us so that our identity before him now is, as verse 21 put it, as clothed in his own righteousness. So much so that he doesn't say just that we've been clothed in his righteousness. He says that we what? We are the righteousness of God. In Christ Jesus. Just ponder that for a second. He said that's who you are. Fundamentally, at the very center of your being, you are one made righteous by the blood of Jesus Christ. It is your identity. And when that's the case, does it become more uh, possible, at least in our own human thinking, to say, oh, 
I can live out of that identity and then do the things that I was crafted and made by Christ to do. You guys follow the difference? It's the difference between saying, I've got to fight against my fundamental nature in order to do the thing that I'm supposed to do, versus saying, yes, I still have things that are hang-ups and that prevent me from doing the right thing, but it's not fundamentally who I am. So to do right and to do good is me living out fundamentally of who I have become because of what Jesus has done. And that, I have not found anything more helpful than that than understand in my sort of um, relationship, my battle against the sin struggles and patterns in my life. I hope that you will find it helpful in yours as well. So now let's look at these three things that we said we wanna talk about, okay? The first is this. What is it that we need to see about God from this text that will help us become better ministers of reconciliation, people who are helping other people be reconciled to God? The first is this, and perhaps in this text, the thing I, really just the one thing I wanna highlight about what we need to see about God is this. He wants to forgive. He wants to to forgive. Now, <clears throat> you may hear that and you may think, Trent, yeah, I mean, that's kind of, that's kind of a no-duh. I, I knew that, right? He wants to forgive. But I wanna point out two things. Most of us live as if we're not sure that God really wants to forgive. We, I think some of us think maybe that he has to because Jesus has died and therefore he's like obligated to forgive us for the sins we continue to struggle with, but he does it begrudgingly. That's a disposition I find in many of my brothers and sisters. Rather than the perspective that God is going to great lengths in order to forgive. And I also want to point out that I come in contact with on a regular basis, and I bet you do too, people who live their whole lives not really sure if they could or should be forgiven by God. Or if they could be or would be forgiven by God, perhaps I should say. Have you known, have you had a friend? who goes through life just wondering, like, I, I don't know. Is God merciful? Would God forgive? And they have in their mind that thing from 10 years ago that they've never let go of, that, they, that is absolutely wrapped them up and defined their identity because they did it and they can't ever imagine that they could be untethered from the weight of that thing that they have done. And as ministers of reconciliation, one of the great joys of, of the things that we get to proclaim that we have seen with our spiritual eyes is that God is not just begrudgingly forgiving, but that he wants to forgive and has gone to great lengths to make forgiveness available to anyone who would take it. You and I need to be deeply convinced of that. Look at what it says here. A couple of verses. We'll kind of, kind of jump around a little bit. But let's point out in verse 18 first that he says, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Now here's what he's saying there in verse 18. Everyone who has been reconciled becomes someone who is made to reconcile others to God through Christ, to point them to the opportunity to be reconciled to God. So here's what that means is that he didn't just say, I'm gonna take a few of the folks that I reconciled to myself and I'm gonna make them the ones who I'm gonna sort of Tap out is my special like Navy SEAL team of reconcilers. What I'm going to do is I'm going to make every single person who comes to me through the blood of my son into someone who then reconciles others. Because I'm going to amass an army of reconcilers. And you don't amass an army of anything unless you intend to win a battle. He has gone to great lengths to put in place for himself an army that sits on the borders of Satan's territory, ready to attack and take back ground. And say, this is God's kingdom and God's world, and you will go no further. 
We are going to take back Christ's kingdom. He's made an army of us. And it's you, and it's you, and it's you, and it's you. Every single one of us is a reconciler. That's at least a point of evidence that God seems to be really intent upon bringing forgiveness and reconciliation to people, right? Now look at verse uh, 14. I said four, I meant 14. He says, For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. Okay, key in on that phrase, that one has died for all. Now, here's what you're going to find. We're going to move to verse 15 in a second, a little later in the sermon, and we're going to see that he's making a distinction between those who take up the forgiveness that he offers, those who have life, he says in verse 15, versus the all in verse 14. So what that tells us is that in verse 14, he's literally meaning all, all people, everywhere, believers, unbelievers, right? I mean, he's thinking about everybody who's an unbeliever before Christ uh, redeems them. And he's saying he died for who? Just for some? No, he died for all. In other words, he has made it so that he is pursuing all people with this news of reconciliation, that they can be reconciled to God and inviting them into it. So that's verse 14. He died for all, right? And then verse 19, if you go down further, he says, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. So that fits with the idea of the all, right? The world, the entire world. God is reconciling the world to himself. And then just a great comforting truth, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Not counting their trespasses against them. Now, if you've lived your whole life under the weight of something you did that you just cannot see how you could possibly be forgiven for that thing. And someone says to you, God isn't counting your trespasses against you. He's not counting that thing that you have in your mind. He's not counting that thing against you. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that everyone gets forgiven? Does that mean that there's no point? Well, there would be no point to Christ dying if, there was, if everyone just got in, right? If everyone just, if he says, well, he's not counting it against you, he just kind of let it go. What he's saying is, He is not counting it against you so that he withholds the opportunity to be forgiven, to be reconciled. He didn't withhold his son. He didn't withhold sending his son to die for that because he held it against you. He didn't hold it against you. He doesn't hold it against you so that he sent his son so that the opportunity to be reconciled would be available. So it's far from teaching that everyone just doesn't have their sins counted against them. It's saying everyone has the opportunity to not have their sins counted against them because God didn't hold it against us and therefore say, I will withhold my love and forgiveness and reconciling work by keeping my son here. I will send him so that there may be the possibility. that You guys follow that? So I really, I, I think the thing there that I want you to understand is um, people who believe that God is intent, deeply committed to, because he has sent his son, because he's created an army of reconcilers, that we believe that he is eager and longing to forgive and to reconcile are people who approach other people with a very different disposition than those who are not sure that God is really all that eager to do that. You can just picture that for a second. What if you looked at your whole life and every person you came in contact with through the lens of a reconciler who believed that God wanted to reconcile the person you were looking at to himself through Jesus? You might be a little more patient in traffic, right? You might be a little more patient with that person at work. 
might see them as an object of God's love rather than as someone who is a burden to your daily existence. God is eager, eager to reconcile. By the way, one of the distinctions when you, when you think about this, that he sent his son to die. He, the, so one died, therefore all have died, right? And he died so that those who live might live for the one who died for them, right? That, all that's saying is Jesus died so that people might be reconciled to God and everyone who is reconciled to God then is not in charge of their own life anymore, but live for him. He's in charge of that life now. One of the things that's important for us to remember is this. You have to keep a distinction between Christianity and all other religions in the world. And what we're talking about here is, I think, a helpful thing for us as we move and navigate in our world. Because people tend to want to say, well, God surely would make a lot of different pathways for people to get to him. And they all seem to, any kind of religion should probably work out as long as you're sincere about it. And I can totally appreciate why that's a perspective that, that a number of people hold. But one of the things that we need to probably help point people to is the reality that you can say that of all religions that involve working to get God's approval, like obeying certain things or doing certain things so that you ultimately get right with God. But you can't say it about Christianity. And the reason you can't is because what Christianity declares is the only way to be made right with God is not by anything you do, but what God does for us. And if God has chosen to send his son to die on a cross so that we might be reconciled to him. And there were other ways that that reconciliation could have happened. That turns the cross from an act of great love into, a, into an act of abhorrent evil. It turns it into essentially divine child abuse, right? What good father sacrifices their son if there's another way to accomplish the same purposes? So while that's not necessarily an argument that someone says, oh, well, then I must believe, it's at the very least a distinguishing argument that causes us to see that this is distinct and this is different and it can't be lumped in with all the others. Because if it's done, if it was done, then it had to be the only way. Because a good father would only do that if it was the only way. So let's look at the second thing we need to see. What do we need to see about people? So we need to see about God that he is eager to forgive that he is intent upon doing it. The second thing that we need to see is why, what do we need to see about people? And this is gonna be a combination of two things. It's this, that people are spiritually dead, but that there is more to them than we see at first sight. That people are spiritually dead, but there is more to them than we see at first sight. Look back at verse 14 again. I'll show you what, what I'm getting at here. These two things are kind of in contrast to one another. In verse 14, he says, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. That's what we've said so far. Then he says, Therefore, all have died. Now, here's the interesting point about that. Some folks look at that and they say, Okay, Christ died, and the, the therefore, the conclusion from seeing that Christ died is that all have died. And they look at that and they say, Well, just to be a little technical with you for a minute, you've got to kind of get your eyes rooted in the text. So let's put it up on the screen, gang, so that they, we can see verse 14 and 15. And I don't know if we can put them together. It would be great if we can put 14 and 15 together up there. If not, hopefully you've got your Bibles in front of you. When it says that, verse 14, he's talking about all. In other words, all people, right? And he says that Christ died for all. One died for all, therefore all have died. And you might look at that and say, well, what does it mean? How do you draw that conclusion that all have died because one died? 
perhaps what he's talking about there is the idea that everyone who comes to Jesus is no longer in charge of their own life. They have to die to themselves in order to come to Jesus. So he came and he died. Therefore, all those who want to follow him, they have to die. But there's a problem with that. And it's this, is that in verse 14, he's already used the idea of all to talk about the entire world, all people, right? Those who are not his followers. So you can't take two words later and make the all at the end of verse 14 mean something different than the all three words before it. Those alls need to mean the same thing. And then in verse 15, he's going to say, and those so that those who live might live not for themselves, but for him, right? And so he's transitioning in verse 15 to talk specifically about the fact that those who come to him are no longer in charge of their own lives, which means that in verse 14, he's still talking about all. Now I know I'm getting a little complex here, but let me just bring it home and make it really simple here. Okay, If he is saying, one died for all, therefore all have died, what he's saying is not all those who come to him then die to themselves. What he's saying is, if Jesus was sent to die for all people, then the conclusion that we can draw from that is that those people must have had a need for him to die for them. In other words, all are spiritually dead is the conclusion that we can draw from the fact that Jesus was sent to die. If they weren't spiritually dead, that's not a conclusion that we would draw that he would need to come. Okay, do you guys follow that? So what verse 14 is telling us is because Jesus died, the, the thing that that points us to, the reality that it points us to, is that all people are in fact spiritually dead. So now think about that. When you think about your friends, your loved ones who are apart from Christ, it's terribly offensive to say to people, well, spiritually you're dead. Right? I mean, just recognize that. That's terribly offensive. But the evidence that we have to recognize that is not just that all over the scriptures it says that. But, but here specifically we think, well, if Jesus died and was sent by God in order to do that, what other reason would he have been sent for unless people were spiritually dead? It's just, it's, it's a one plus one equals two sort of a reality. So that's what he's saying here. Okay? All people are spiritually dead and in need of being brought back to life or reconciled to God, which is what spiritual life is, to be right with God in relationship. So now look down at verses 16 and 17 because that's the first half. All people are spiritually dead. We need to recognize that. And here's why we need to recognize it. Because if you and I aren't convicted that people are spiritually dead, then we don't believe that there's any need to actually reconcile them to God. Right? There's no problem to be solved if people aren't spiritually dead. And so while it's incredibly offensive, it's incredibly necessary, not just because it's true, but because if we don't believe it, there's no impetus, there's no motivation to say, oh my goodness, these people that I love are separated from God and need to be reconciled. Do you guys follow that? So it's necessary to believe in the spiritual death of all people as a result of the sin of Adam handed down to every generation. Every single one of us. Now, here's what he says in verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. So in other words, here's what he's saying in verse 16. He's saying, we used to look at Jesus and what we saw was a homeless guy with some rabble followers who were like the JV that nobody was interested in. And so he took him, and he had no place to lay his head, and he taught some kind of odd things. And then he died on the cross because he was a criminal, apparently, according to the religious leaders. <coughs> and that's how we saw Jesus. Remember who's writing this. Paul is writing this. 
And what did Paul do before he became Paul? If those of you who have been in church a while, right? He's Saul and he's persecuting the church and he's looking at Jesus and going, I used to look at Jesus and I used to see just kind of this unimportant religious leader that raised up a, a smattering of a following that I was committed to crushing. And I didn't think he was anything. And then God opened my eyes and I stopped looking at Jesus the way I once looked at him. I used to see him as nothing. And then I saw that the one hanging on the cross, rather than being cursed by God, was bearing the curse of God for all of humankind. I once looked and saw a humble, nothing servant, and now I look and I see King of kings and Lord of lords reigning over all things for all time. That's who I now see. My vision has been fundamentally shifted as it pertains to Jesus. And he connects that to how he views people. We now, therefore, regard no one according to the flesh. We don't just look at their outward appearance anymore. We used to look at Jesus that way, and boy, did we get our paradigm shifted. And now we look at people, and where we once probably saw dirty, insignificant, whiny, hard to love, complaining, getting in my way, and in the way of the accomplishment of all the things I want to get done with life, inconvenient, where we once saw that, now we see something entirely different. We see a people who God is wanting to reconcile to himself. We look at them in a way that we never looked at them before. And here's what Paul knows. Verse 17, following verse 16. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Now, most of the time, if you're familiar with that verse, what we do is we apply it to ourselves. And we say, I'm in Christ, therefore I am a new creation. That is true and it's good to be reminded of. In fact, I did it at the beginning of this sermon, didn't I? I reminded you are a new creation. But in the context of this passage, Paul is not first and foremost thinking of himself as a new creation. Who's he thinking of? The people he's talking about in verse 16. We don't regard anyone according to the flesh. We see the possibility of all of these people being reconciled to God and we no longer see them through the lens of just ordinary people. We now see them through the lens of people who can become something in Jesus that is so profoundly beautiful and powerful that they could never even imagine what it is that they can be. We see who they can be in Jesus Christ, not what they are now. Now you wanna start looking at people that way? Would that be a good way for you to start looking at people? Would you love to have your vision changed and shifted so that when you looked at people, when you're walking through the crowded mall or driving down the highway or you're at the football game and you're bumping up against people left and right and you cut through the line as it happened to me the other night, we moved through and the girl looks at me and goes, what am I, a turnstile? And I wanted to say turn and say, no. Because I don't regard you according to the flesh. That would have weirded her out. You are one that God aims to reconcile to himself. What a different way to see people. What a different way to see people. Here's the beauty of that. And you've heard me say this before, okay? Here's what you can do. Because the beauty of it is even though people are spiritually dead, all of us, before we come to Christ, we still bear the image of the one who created us. Fractured and splintered by sin, to be sure. But the image is still there. And so when you see kindness or patience or goodness or truthfulness or uh, sincerity, when you see these things in people that, that 
are the mark that they're created by a good and holy God. You can begin to see the thing that will be absolutely transformed and magnified when they come to Jesus Christ and brought to its fullness and its wholeness when they come into Jesus. And you can begin to recognize that in them and draw it out and say to them, oh, I see such beauty in you. The beauty of the one that created you and and what it could be. Now, some people will balk at that. They'll reject that and they'll say, Aren't you supposed to love people as they are, not for what they can be? And that's true to some degree. But in Jesus, we all do this all the time. Because even within the church, we're all a mess. Amen? Somebody say amen. Amen. We're one big mess, all of us. And I was going to say something stronger there, but I don't know what it was. I saw George laughing at me. We're just one big mess, and we recognize that about one another. And yet, when we look at each other, what are we supposed to see? The big mess? We're supposed to see the one who is able to clean up the mess and what he's going to make us. I mean, if we want to love each other, that's part of what we've got to be able to do, is to go, oh, I can, I can project out into the future who this person is going to be. They're going to be something profoundly, staggeringly powerful and beautiful, because they are being remade by the creator of the universe through the blood of Jesus Christ. And it is remarkable. Just imagine if people in the church walked around thinking one another that we were all remarkable. We would just be, people would think we were crazy because people would say, well, did you see that? And I'd say, oh, that's a remarkable person. What are you talking about? Well, they know Jesus. They're remarkable. And getting more remarkable by the day. Last thing. What we need to see about ourselves, and it's simple and it's easy, but it's this. Love was meant to be the compelling force in our life. Look at what he says in verse 14 again. For the love of Christ controls us. Pause. Stop. For the love of Christ controls us. In other words, what he's saying is, when you come to Jesus, you are meant to be someone who is controlled by the love of Christ. Now that phrase can mean one of two things, and both are true. When you hear the love of Christ, it could be the love that we have for Christ, or it could be the love of Christ, the love that Christ has for us. You guys see how it could be either of those? And in the original language, both those things are true. It's one of the questions people ask all the time. What is this referring to? Whose love is it? And and both are true, but in this case, because of the context, the best understanding is that it is Christ's love for us that controls us. It's Christ's love for us that controls us. So here's what that means. It means a couple things. It means, one, that you are meant to have your life dictated to you by the love that Christ has for you and then for others. That the reconciling work doesn't stop with you. He's not just interested in just reconciling you to himself, but reconciling others. But if that's going to happen, well, actually, let me say this first. One of the things that you need to, friends, you need to recognize particularly those of you uh, who are still pondering whether Christ is who he claims to be, right? Whether you want to follow him. If you're pondering that, let me just point something out to you that those of us on this side of following him have realized uh, and, it, and it, it dawned on us and we were totally unaware before. It's this, is that we thought before we came to Christ that we were living autonomous lives, that we were in control. We thought that we were in control and that we were free and that we were living and that we were making choices and that we were... You know, we were somehow in charge. When we came to Christ, what happened is that we saw that we were all along being controlled by forces that we weren't aware of. We were being controlled by greed, by lust, by selfishness. We were being controlled by love of money, by fear of people and what they would think of us. 
all of it was controlling us. I mean, you pick your one, right? Everybody's got one in your mind, don't you? You were controlled by something. So the reality we came to realize is everybody's controlled by something. Everybody is controlled by something. So why not be controlled by the love of Christ? Why not be controlled by the best thing that is able to, rather than make you shrink and take away your human dignity and make you something less than you were intended to be, why not be controlled by the thing that can make you absolutely who you were, at, who can make you thrive and make you what you were made to be? Be controlled by Christ's love for you. Let it dictate to you everything that you do. So we're not in charge of our lives. We know that. We're controlled by the love of Christ and we delight that it's so. But church, here's what it means for you specifically. I have never seen a person who is good at this reconciling work that we've been given to see others reconciled to God through Christ. Never seen anybody who's good at it who is not deeply convinced that they are loved by God. I've never seen it happen. Because you can proclaim a bunch of facts. You can say, well, Jesus died. He was the son of God, lived a sinless life. Here's the evidence for the resurrection. You can do a lot of things and you can kind of, but that is something very different than someone that deep down at the very core of their being is convinced that they are loved by a holy and pure and righteous God and that he loves them no matter what. And his, the evidence of that love was the crucifixion of his son. And the evidence that love will never fail to reach them is the resurrection of his son. And so it, they are washed over again and again and again in the love of Christ. And when you know that you are loved by God for the sake of Christ, it changes everything. Nothing is the same when you know that you are loved. And friends, if you want to fight against sin and win battles, if you want to be a great reconciler, you've got to know that Christ loves you. You've got to know that you are treasured by him. You've got to know that that love will never cease and it will never fade, it will never wane it will always be burning as white hot as it does now. And it won't be based upon how good you are that day or the next day or how lousy you were the day after that. It is based solely and completely on the finished work of Jesus Christ to purchase you for himself and to declare, stamp on you, loved one of God. Loved one of God. And people who know that and believe it become great reconcilers because they are controlled by the love of Christ. We get to come to the table today, which causes us to ponder the love of Christ and the specific act that was done so that we might know it. So ushers, why don't you come? We can take the bread and the cup. Friends, let me say again, as the ushers come, we do this regularly as a church. And I remind you always, let me remind you again, that this is a representation of what Christ has done for us. A representation, a symbolic representation of his body and his blood, which is given so that we might be reconciled to God, what we've been talking about today. Let me say our friends who are with us today, who are searching uh, spiritually, wondering whether or not you would take Christ and his offer to be reconciled to God, let me invite you uh, to make this that day. But if today is not that day, if you still are considering, let us invite you to let these elements pass by Ponder, consider, pray, wait on the Lord, ask him. Ask him. He's drawing you. We believe deeply that you are loved by him, but we wouldn't imagine to want to make you partake of something you haven't yet believed in. And so church, those who have believed, as you take these elements, let me invite you to do two things. We always are invited to ponder, consider our own sin. 
and to, and to be sobered by the reality of the price that was paid so that we might be forgiven of the very sin that we ponder and consider and bring to the foot of the cross. Ask for forgiveness. Confess it to the Lord Jesus. Let me invite you to do something more than that today. We have an important day in our country coming on Tuesday uh, as we go to uh, the polls. And I want to invite you, I think it's appropriate as a member, not just of the body of Christ, but also a member of this country that we call home and for which we are very thankful that we would pray and confess not just our sins, but the sins of our country, the ways we have moved away from God, the ways we have called things that he says are unrighteous, we've called them righteous and vice versa. Let me invite you to pray and consider and, and make that act of confession on the part of our country. I was reminded of what G.K. Chesterton said, he's a British author and humorist, when someone asked him, what is wrong with the world, G.K.? And G.K., without pausing or hesitating, looked at the man who asked him the question and said, well, dear sir, I am. I am. 